The Old Testament reading for this, the 25th Sunday after Pentecost, which serves as the text for our sermon, comes from the prophet Zephaniah, the first chapter. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. In whose heart are the highways of Zion. The epistle reading comes from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains have come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel comes to us according to St. Matthew, the 25th chapter. Jesus said, The last day will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. 
He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we enter these last Sundays of the church here, You probably noticed a fairly clear theme to our readings, the last days, the end of the world, Jesus Christ's triumphant return. Now some would say that it's a morbid way to end the year, looking at the end of all things, kind of counting down to final judgment. But it's not morbid at all. Despite the warnings of doom and gloom that are so often associated with Judgment Day, it is not at all a bad thing for Christians. On that great and glorious day, when Christ returns in power and majesty, he comes to carry us to our eternal home, that glorious paradise that he has prepared and won for us. His return means the end of sin and pain and shame and suffering and the beginning of the endless perfection of heaven. So for those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, the last days are not something to fear and dread but rather something to look forward to with eagerness and with joy. But alas, this isn't the case for everyone. Because amid the joy of the believers, there will indeed be great consternation and dread. It will not be a day of any joy at all for those who reject Jesus, those who worship false gods, those who reveled in the sinful ways of Satan. For them it will be a day of wrath, as they are driven from God's presence forever, getting that which they thought would be so great. They who had no love for God on earth, 
who claimed they had no need for him, they will find out the hard way that eternity without God is the unending torment of hell itself. As God casts out all sin and wickedness, those who cling to it and refuse to repent will be cast out with it. And this is one of the reasons that our readings focus on the end times as the church year draws to a close. While we look forward with joy, we also remember that there are many who are lost. So many who will have no joy at all on that day if they continue in their faithless, godless ways. This is why God, in his great mercy, continues to warn, continues to show people glimpses of the eternal horrors that they will face, continues to call out to all people, his grace and his love have paid the price and won the gift of heaven for all who believe. But who exactly needs to hear that warning? To whom is God speaking when he shows these horrors? Well, we know that for the wicked and the idolater, Judgment Day is going to be terrible. There are many in this world that we know need to hear God's warnings. Atheists who vehemently deny the existence of God. Cultists and heretics who claim to follow God but twist and pervert his word into something that's not who reject the Bible as the ultimate authority and instead substitute the words of man. Pagans, who worship false gods like Allah or Shiva or Buddha, who worship their ancestors or believe that we are reincarnated to have another go-around at life until we finally get it right. In our Old Testament reading, Zephaniah is talking about these such people when he mentions things like jumping over the threshold and wearing foreign attire. These were things that were associated with paganism. Rituals and uniforms used to give glory to idols. Things that the people of Israel should not be taking part in, and yet they so joyfully did. For these people who look to false gods, who reject and twist God's word, there will be nothing but eternal punishment. Hell is real, and the warnings are very, very clear. God warns the world over and over to turn away from sin, to believe that he has paid the price and redeemed us all. But the world doesn't listen. And those who persist in these ways, despite God's warnings, they have told God, I don't want your forgiveness, and I want nothing to do with you. And despite the fact that it hurts him deeply, despite the fact that the price has already been paid, God obliges and grants them their disastrous wish. But you see, it's not just those outright and grievous offenders who are in danger. Here in Zephaniah's prophecy, we also see a warning for the complacent. He says, At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. So who are these complacent? Well, as Zephaniah says, they're the ones who say, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They're not railing against God or bowing down to false gods necessarily. They just don't care. They're lukewarm, claiming to be believers, but utterly hollow in their faith. These are the people who say, 
I can believe in God in my own way. And I don't need the church to tell me what to believe. These are the people who prefer to live according to the world's standards than to God's, but still want the full benefits of heaven. Those who don't see a problem with living together, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality. Those who support a person's choice to kill an unborn child for the sake of convenience or economics. Or say that it's not really their place to infringe on someone else's choice to do so. Those who say that while they know Jesus to be their Savior, they also know that he's not the only way to heaven. Those who say, I have Christian faith, but I don't let it impact my life because I don't want to be one of those Christians. The complacent are those who put more faith in science than God, claiming that evolution is truth, that the miracles couldn't have really happened, that the Bible is a good collection of moral stories and fables, but it's not real history, of course. They're the ones who always put God's word last always have something more important to do. Choosing sleep over scripture, work over the word, popularity over prophecy, good times over the good news, creature comforts over the cross. They are comfortable changing God's word to fit their lives or repeating whatever popular spin they recently heard that fits the current fad of sin. They are Christian in name, but can't really be bothered to think about it or live like it. As long as they've got their name on a church roster, they've got somewhere to be married and buried, and though that's good enough. And I'm not talking about missing a daily devotion here or there, or not having perfect attendance at church and Bible study. The truth is, if you're worried about it, you're not complacent, because you are taking God's warning seriously. We can all always do better. What I'm talking about, and what God is talking about, is a continual, consistent complacency, a total lack of concern, showing up once or twice if someone really guilts them into it, paying some lip service to Jesus every now and then, thinking that a cross necklace or tattoo is sufficient to prove they're a a Christian, but overall really not caring one way or another about the church or God or salvation. Now, do you know anyone like that? I'm sure you do. We all have friends and family members who fall into this category, sadly. Not necessarily outright opposed to the church, but people who just don't care, who can't be bothered to put God first. What do we usually do about it? Ah, that's just the way they are. What are you going to do? God understands, and they'll be fine in the end. We don't want to offend them or hurt their feelings or make them think they might be doing something wrong. We're just going to politely sit back and watch them traipse to hell, get mad at the pastor when he says it's not right to do their funeral or wedding at the church, and we're just going to let sleeping dogs lie. We treat their complacency with complacency. Now, I'm not trying to be glib here, because that really is the way that we treat the complacent, isn't it? But have you thought about what that means for them? Are you content to let them ruin their life and drift further and further from God? Are you all right with them turning their back on God and slowly rejecting his grace? Are you comfortable with the thought of your friend or father or daughter-in-law suffering for eternity in hell? I should hope not. But that's really what's at stake. 
God's grace is sufficient for all. He paid the price for all sin upon the cross. But those who reject it, be it through atheism, idolatry, or just plain old complacency, they exclude themselves from the joy of heaven. One of the most common arguments that I hear from non-believers is that if God really existed and was really a loving God like you Christians say he is, well then he would just proclaim to the world that everyone can go to heaven. Guess what? That's exactly what the Bible says. But people choose to turn away. They claim that they found an alternate route, a better way, and then they blame God and accuse him of being unloving. If the doctor gives you a pill that will knock out your sickness immediately, and you go home, toss the pill into the sink, and eat a block of cheese instead, do you have any right to blame the doctor? Of course not. God's word is truth. No matter how much you argue otherwise, no matter how much you say that it isn't. And the truth is, there is one and only one way to heaven. And that is through the God-given gift of faith in Jesus Christ, given to us in our baptism, strengthened and nurtured by his word and his true body and blood in communion. For those who look elsewhere, for those who have more important things to do, for those who are content to be complacent in their faith, there is no salvation. But look around you today. Who is this message for? Most of the complacent aren't here because it's not Christmas Eve yet. How are they going to hear the warning? We take it to them. We speak God's word wherever we are so that the complacent may be roused from their slumber and realize the grave danger that they are in. Now that doesn't mean that we have to continually hammer them over the head with the Bible because that usually does more harm than good. But we speak God's word continually as we live out our faith, as we make it clear that the way of the Lord is a better way than the world. As we show them that being complacent about Christian faith is not a good thing. We boldly proclaim the word of God in what we do and what we say. Doing so in a loving manner. Praying that God would touch the lives of all those around us and would restore them to faith. And the only way that we can do that is through our own God-given faith. And through his continual strength and power and grace. We sow the seed, and we trust the Holy Spirit to work. It's not up to us to bring about faith in anyone, but we bring that word to all. And when the complacent realize what God delivers through his word, through his sacraments, they won't be complacent anymore. Here at church, in God's holy house, among the congregation of believers, we receive the most precious gifts ever. Here we learn of how our Lord and Savior came to us in the flesh to save us from our wretched sin that fills our lives in every possible way. Here we grow in our faith as we hear God's word, recognize how clearly it applies to and improves our lives, study it, and put it into action. Here we see God's love for us in action 
as we come to his cross each and every day, as we see him willingly give his life in our place. Here, we rejoice continually at the empty tomb of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that that is what awaits us, everlasting life, simply because Jesus has taken away the guilt of all of our sin. When we convey that simple but glorious truth in our lives, when the complacent realize just how precious God's gifts actually are, when they recognize that here is where we receive salvation itself, they won't be complacent anymore. They'll beat down the door of the church, eagerly await every service, demand that we add more Bible studies so that they can learn more and more about what God has done for us. Does that mean that we will rouse the complacent every single time if we live our lives a certain way? Sadly, no. But that does mean that we speak the word continually reminding everyone of the precious treasure given to us by the church here on earth, never giving up and leaving them to their condemned complacency. And when Jesus comes again in glory, we who believe, we will rejoice beyond all measure. It will not be a day of wrath, but a day of joy, as we celebrate the end of our wretched sin and the absolute perfection of our eternal life with God. This is the ultimate gift given to us by the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And it is a gift that we want nobody at all to miss out on. And because we know how wonderful that gift really is, because we know that it is a free gift from God for all those who believe, we, like Zephaniah, we speak God's warning to the complacent. We warn our loved ones, our neighbors, even our enemies, about the dire consequences of clinging to sin and turning away from God. We shout the alarm in the hopes of waking up the complacent, of jarring them from their apathy. And we boldly and joyfully proclaim the undeserved and eternal love that Jesus Christ has for all, celebrating unashamedly that we know without a doubt that we will live forever in heaven. And as we do, we pray that God would touch the lives of our loved ones and all those around us. That he would restore to them the joy of his salvation. That he would bring them back to the faith so that they can stand shoulder to shoulder with us, rejoicing and proclaiming to the world that good news of the gospel by which we have been saved. That by the cross of Jesus Christ alone, by his empty tomb alone, you are forgiven of every one of your sins, and eternal life in heaven is yours. Thanks be to God. Amen.